after our January kick off the new year sermon series and before Lent begins, we featured a sermon series that, that focuses on a short book of the Bible. So two years ago, it was Jonah. Last year, it was Ruth. We're continuing that pattern today uh, with the book of Esther. It's good to give these uh, perhaps a bit more obscure scriptures our attention because the entire Bible, of course, is the foundation of our faith journeys. As we continue through our 50th anniversary year as a congregation, uh, each month we're going to focus on a, a different aspect of what it means to be part of Christ United Methodist Church. Last month we talked about how we are committed to growth as disciples, especially as it relates to uh, ongoing learning. This month we're focusing on the fact that we are a congregation grounded in Scripture. As United Methodists, we believe that Scripture is the starting place of all of our theological reflection and that it contains, uh, in the words of our Articles of Religion, all things necessary for salvation, which is to say, uh, Scripture tells us what we need to know in order to be in a right relationship with God. As Christians, of course, that begins with placing our faith in Christ, and then we spend the rest of our lives growing in love for God and neighbor. So here at Christ United Methodist Church, we offer ongoing Bible studies throughout the year, including my Bible study on Sunday afternoons. And each week in worship, we open ourselves to be both uh, formed and transformed by the Word of God as it is revealed in the words of Scripture. Because no matter how familiar we may be with the pages of this book, all of us are called to continue to grow in our understanding of it. And so this week and next, uh, we're focusing on the Old Testament book of Esther, which is set in the, the fifth century BC. In case you've never read it, Esther is the story of a significant threat to God's people, a threat that is averted by the courage and the wisdom of the woman for whom the book is named. It's a beautifully and compellingly told story of, of palace intrigue. It's a story that explains uh, an important annual festival for our Jewish brothers and sisters, which we'll come back to next week. It's a story uh, that's intended to encourage faithful and responsible living. And because we're going to be spending just two Sundays on this, on this 10 chapter book, we need to summarize it a bit as we begin. Now, if you've never read it, it does not take long to read and it would absolutely be worth your time. It's a beautifully told, very tightly told narrative. Um, but here's the summary of what you need to know as we get started. There are uh, four characters that are important. The Persian king, uh, whose name is so hard to pronounce, I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> Actually, I could, but I, it's, there's no need for that. He's the king. Uh, Esther, obviously. Mordecai, who is Esther's father figure, as we'll talk about. Um, and then one of the king's senior officials, a man named Haman. And as the book opens, uh, we're in this over-the-top 180-day-long banquet celebrating the wealth and the opulence of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persians had conquered Babylon back in 539 BC and, in fact, had given permission for God's people to go back to Judah if they wanted thus ending the exile. But, but many of the Jewish community remained in Persia and uh, were still living in Persia by the time of Esther, which was a half century or so later. And on the final day of these over-the-top festivities, the king sends for the queen to join him. She is a, man, a woman named Vashti, um, and it's to we we're told in chapter one that the king basically wanted to show her off because she was so beautiful. 
Well, when she refuses, the king and his court lose their minds and they immediately depose her and they declare that she may never again appear in the king's presence. That may not have been quite the punishment that he thought it was, but whatever. And then the search for a new queen begins. In a satire about the shallowness of the king and his court, they decide that the sole requirement for being queen is to win a beauty contest, literally, judged by the king himself. Uh, This is a very famous painting by Edwin Long from 1879 depicting uh, Esther from his perspective. Now Esther is is a Jewish woman Her family had been taken into exile by the Babylonians uh, several generations earlier, and she wins the beauty contest. We're told that that she is an orphan and that her much older cousin, Mordecai, has become like her father. This is uh, a painting by Gelder from 1685. Gelder was a, a student of Rembrandt, obviously a very different kind of depiction of Esther, and that's Mordecai on the left. It was Mordecai who had encouraged Esther to participate in the contest to become queen. And it seems as though either he was a palace official himself or uh, he was at least a prominent enough citizen to be frequently hanging around the castle because after Esther becomes queen, he overhears this plot to assassinate the king. So he tells Esther about this plot Uh, She tells the king the plot is averted, and obviously very early in their relationship, uh, she is endeared to the new king, okay? Now, the fourth character that you need to know is a guy named Haman. This is a depiction of Haman in the foreground by Rembrandt, 1665. Haman is promoted to a senior position in the king's court. Think of him as the, like the prime minister, And the king commands that in recognition of his new uh, station, his new status, everyone must bow down and offer obeisance to Haman when he walks in the room or walks by on the street. But Mordecai, for whatever reason, refuses. And just as Vashti's disobedience prompts this enormous overreaction by the man she offends, the king, so Mordecai's disobedience prompts an enormous overreaction by the man he offends, Haman. So much so that Haman bribes the king with an enormous amount of money into issuing an order to kill all the Jews in the kingdom on a single day, 11 months from the date of the decree. That date was was chosen by Lot. So 11 months from that day, every Jew in the kingdom will be killed. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. We're going to read uh, Esther chapter 4. I'll read the first eight verses now, then we'll come back to the rest later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Esther. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went throughout the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, 
She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, that's the capital of Persia, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as people of God, in the words of our uh, United Methodist baptismal vows, what are we to do when faced with, with evil, injustice, and oppression? That's the way our baptismal vows that we all sign up for uh, refer to them. What are we to do as God's people when, when confronted with evil, injustice, and oppression? That's the essential question posed by the book of Esther. What are we to do? How, how are we to act? That's the challenge of this story. Um, on the one hand is this hypersensitive, insecure, vengeful guy named Haman whose feelings uh, were hurt when a Jewish man would not bow down to him. And to us, the idea that he would order a genocide of all of God's people in the kingdom seems preposterous, of course, or at least it seems preposterous until we remember history and the many seemingly preposterous reasons that have been used to justify evil, injustice, and oppression. On the other hand, are two of God's people, both of whom uh, have everything to lose, but one of whom has the power to do something about the atrocity that's being planned. What What will her choice be? Now, if you've read the book of Genesis, you may notice that the story of Esther has very distinct echoes to the story of Joseph, he of amazing technicolor dream coat fame. In the story of Joseph, God works for the good of God's people through someone who has been um, improbably raised to a position of power and influence in a foreign court. And in Joseph's case, it was thanks to his God-given ability to interpret dreams that he becomes an advisor to Pharaoh. In that position, we're told that he is able to to help Israel during a severe famine, uh, keeping them from starving during this very early existential crisis for our faith ancestors. In Esther's case, she has become queen of Persia at just the moment when God's people are facing a new existential crisis. And the question here in chapter four is, well, how how will she respond? In my weekly column Thursday before last, I wrote about a a field trip that I had the chance to chaperone with my oldest son. One of his classes went to the the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. Um, If you've never been to the museum, I really would highly recommend it. This is, uh, I think, the second location that it's occupied. The architecture is beautiful. It's perfect for the the, uh, history it's trying to tell. It was founded originally in 1984 by Dallas area Holocaust survivors. And there are are several different features of the museum. All of them are powerful. All of them are educational. All of them 
are moving. The main permanent uh, exhibition is a walking tour, which uh, gives a brief overview of the history of anti-Semitism, and then it's followed by a, a much more in-depth explanation of the rise of the Nazi movement and the Holocaust itself. And as you're walking along this tour, um, it's, it's more or less self-guided. There are photographs and there are videos and there are historical artifacts. <clears throat> and then you get to the point on the tour when you walk into a railroad boxcar, and this is not a replica, this is actually a boxcar um, of the precise age and type that was used to take people to the camps. And a boxcar that size would have been crammed with up to 150 people. And they would have traveled for up to several days to their destination with no food, no water, no sanitation. And that main ex exhibition uh, is both infuriating and depressing as it shows this dramatic example of evil, injustice, and oppression. Our tour ended in the theater with a, a 45 minute film called Voices of Courage, which is a documentary. It's a series of, of interviews with survivors of the camps mixed in with footage from the era. As we sat in the theater listening to the testimony of people who had endured uh, and survived uh, unimaginable suffering, we heard the stories of the cruelty and the inhumanity of the Nazi regime, you know, the details of which we all know. What was particularly difficult to hear for me, though, were the first-hand accounts, the stories of, of how these uh, survivors had been treated by their neighbors. And I'm talking about the people with whom they used to eat dinner in each other's homes. Uh, the people uh, with whom they had shared schools, their kids had gone to school together. The people with whom they used to share life in community. And you heard them talk about how the deepest betrayal in their darkest hour when they needed mercy and compassion the most was that they were ignored um, and sometimes even exploited by these neighbors who in some cases had been their friends. The, the murderous intent of the guys with you know, swastikas on their shoulders and guns in their hands, that was, was bad enough, obviously. But it was the indifference of the bystanders that helped perpetuate this, this evil injustice and oppression during this super dark chapter of world history. And you know, I think it's worth reminding ourselves um, that it was not just the Jewish faithful who were, who were targeted by the Nazis. Y'all know this. Um, those who were part of what we would today call the, the LGBTQ community uh, were sent to the camps and they were, they were marked by these upside down pink triangles. Those who were deemed to be racially inferior were targeted, black people, Roma people, Slavic people. Uh, those who were deemed to be mentally or physically disabled were targeted, as were, probably goes without saying, political opponents. As you begin the walking tour of this permanent exhibit, there's a quote by Albert Einstein in the wall. I shared this last week. We shared it on social media. I'm, I'm gonna say it again. The world uh, is a dangerous place to live, according to Albert Einstein, not because of the people who are evil, um, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. <laughs> and it's, it's a tactic at least as old as the Bible, uh, surely older than that, used by the unscrupulous who hold power. You know, uh, target those who are perceived to be other, 
make them the enemy, uh, and then justify their mistreatment with, with fear and bigotry. And the question for people of goodwill in general, and certainly for people of faith, is how to respond uh, when that happens. Well, when Mordecai tells Esther about the evil that Haman intends to visit upon their people, she has to make um, a difficult choice to, to do something about it. She's arrived, <laughs> she's the queen. She's got a lot to lose. Let's hear how she responds to Mordecai's request. This is chapter four, verses nine to 17. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message from Mordecai saying, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we're, we're 40% of the way through this book, and next week we're gonna talk about the resolution of this crisis. But at the end of our reading for today, I think there's this lingering question <laughs> that we're probably all wondering, which is, where's God in the midst of all this? It's interesting, you may know this is good Bible trivia, if you're ever playing a Bible trivia game. Uh, you may know that there is no mention of, of God no mention of God in any of the 10 chapters of the book of Esther. God's name just doesn't come up. Unlike in the stories of the, of the two most important events in the Old Testament, which are the Exodus and the exile, unlike in those two events, God does not intervene on behalf of God's people when Haman plots the systematic kingdom-wide extermination of them all, at least not directly. <laughs> In this beloved story from our faith history, God certainly acts. God just acts through two of God's faithful. Through Mordecai, who pleads with his adopted daughter to use her power and influence for good. And through Esther, who's much more than a pretty face, as we'll see. And the theological truth in this story, the, the truth of our faith, that this wonderfully told story of palace intrigue, this story of, of a significant threat to God's people that is averted by the courage and wisdom of the, the woman for whom the book is named, the theological truth of this beloved story of our faith is actually one of challenge and it's one of expectation and it's 
that those who consider themselves to be God's faithful must act like it when the time comes. Because you see, people who are experiencing evil, injustice, and oppression, people whose rights and dignity are being violated by the powerful, people who are the target of fear-mongering and discrimination and bigotry, well, they need God to be on their side. And both our faith and our faith history, and certainly this story from our faith history have proven and told us over and over again that more often than not, God relies on us to be God's hands and feet in the world. The book of Esther reminds us that in such moments when people need us, God needs us too. In the words of, of Mordecai, maybe, maybe God calls all of us for just such a time as this. For as long as I can remember, uh, I have loved the game of chess. I taught my two boys how to play it. They've grown to love it as well. In fact, um, they've taken to learn, they've, they've taken to love it so much that they've learned much more about it than I ever did. They've got apps and lessons and like they, they read all this stuff about chess. I never did that. Uh, they're so invested in the game that these days they beat me more often than I beat them. And that is pretty humbling because I've been playing chess for more than four decades, right? And now my 16-year-old and my 12-year-old get the best of me. And I'm not kidding about this. I wish I was exaggerating. I wish I was just bragging on him. But the other night, my 12-year-old beat me in four moves. Four moves. And I looked across the table at him, and I'm like, Sam. He said, well, Dad, that's the blah, 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 blah. Like, that sequence of events is named something. I, I couldn't believe it. Well, one of the oldest and most common openings in a game of chess is something called the Queen's Gambit. Now, you may have heard of it from uh, the book by that name that became a popular Netflix miniseries a couple years ago, but it's been around for a long time. According to chess.com, by the way, which is one of the sites my boys referred me to, geez, <laughs> says, uh, despite being around for centuries, the Queen's Gambit is still one of the cornerstones of every elite player's repertoire. I clearly am not an elite player, but I've started to use the Queen's Gambit to try and beat my boys a little bit more often than I could. Anyway, in the Queen's Gambit, uh, a player leads with, which means risk, risks losing uh, the pawn in front of their queen. And it's a, it's a move to try to gain control of the all-important center of the board using the most powerful piece on the board, which, if you've played chess, you know, is the queen. Because in order to win the game, a bold chess player must take risks. Uh, they must always be willing to make sacrifices when necessary. And in the queen's gambit, that victory is almost always dependent upon her. In the book of Esther, the queen does indeed turn out to be the most powerful character in the story. The one who takes bold risks in order to protect the vulnerable. Next week, we'll find out how. Got to come back next week. Amen. <laughs>